0: This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, designed that lasts a lifetime.
1: You know, I sat with Kate Moss in my bedsit with eleven dresses on a rail and I said, I can't believe you're gonna do it and should I wanna wear that dress? I said you can wear whatever dress you like <laughs> and then it was broadsheet news the next day.
0: From Living Etc Magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how designer Matthew Williamson went from inviting supermodels back to his bed-sit to see its fashion collections, to running a global fashion brand, before pivoting to interior design. There was a moment back in the late 90s and early noughties where it felt like anyone who was anyone was not only wearing Matthew Williamson, but hanging off his arm at a party too. Kate Moss, Jade Jagger, Alec Weck, Khalees, Gwyneth, and his muse Sienna Miller, Matthew was their first choice to dress him. And in turn, he became the it boy of the moment. But behind the scenes, he was working tirelessly to build a lasting brand, with four flagship stores all over the world, full of bright colors, peacock feather motifs, and fun fluoro fabrics. But at the same time, his love of interiors shone through as he collaborated with brands such as The Rug Company and Osborne Little, before eventually winding down the fashion end of his business and reinventing Matthew Williamson, the brand, as an interior design studio. He now lives in Spain with his long-term life and business partner, Joseph Velosa, and before this episode, he chose five key milestones that helped him get to where he is today. And by giving us the story behind them, he's going to tell us how he did it starting right back at the very beginning.
1: I guess I'd graduated in 94 from St. Martin's. So I spent those three years of 94 to 97, I guess, just sort of finding my feet, really, in the design world. Um, I was, you know, very early 20s, Um, I took my first um, job at um, the high street chain Monsoon, which I sort of got quite immediately after graduation. Um, So I found myself employed and I was working across countries from from London and um, India a lot, quite quite a responsible role in a big team of people. So whilst it was a great sort of... um, immersion if you like into my first design job I quickly got frustrated by the limitations and the sort of protocol of how things were ran in the company and increasingly sort of disheartened by the fact that I couldn't do what I wanted to do what I'd what I'd learned at St Martin's I was now very much in a sort of cookie cutter environment so I guess around I think I held that job for two years so in 96 I left much to my mother's horror um, and I just started uh, making things for myself really um, so it was at a time when I was sort of a little um, disillusioned by the corporate world of design and, and you know I wanted to express my own vision I was very clear on what I wanted to say Um At the time, it was very much a mood of monochromatic fashion. Um, You know, the sort of late 90s, it was all about almost quite masculine fashion for women. Lots of suits, lots of black, lots of grey. So in essence, it was the antithesis of what I wanted to say. I think that worked in my favour as I started to venture into this exploration of design and what, what clothes could I put on wrong runway imagining what that might look like it just sort of dovetailed really well with the zeitgeist of I guess the industry the press in particular and the buyers sort of yearning and hankering after something fresh and new and something different something uplifting something colorful something feminine romantic etc
0: I mean there um, was a real there was a real um, sort of Cool Britannia moment, wasn't it, at that part of the 90s, you know, we had sort of gone from that very sort of grungy music, grungy, fa- you know, grungy fashion, tailored fashion, yeah. very black and dark, and suddenly you were there, the Spice Girls were there, um, Britpop was there, it was this real sort of sense of energy and joy and verve. Did you sort of feel part of a, a movement at, at that time? Uh,
1: yeah, I suppose so, I guess... I don't know if I felt it at the time, but retrospectively, yes, I, I can see that, you know, one would look at it now and it, it was a sort of stepping stone of, you know, I made some clothes in that period. They found themselves in the hands of an editor at British Vogue that led to Jay Jagger seeing the clothes and asking if she could wear them before I knew it, I was her best friend and we were sort of joined at the hip for years to come she became a real instrumental part in my business that I was you know this fledgling bedsit operation um and she was clearly a very sort of cool girl you know girl about town she connected me with Kate Moss um and before you know it yeah I was living in Primrose Hill friends with Jude and Sadie and yeah, it was a very sort of um, press-worthy sort of snapshot, if you like, of the time.
0: It's an exciting uh, time, and looking back at the, the shots of your first show in 1997, The Electric Angels, with Kate Moss and Alec Weck and, and Jade Jagger and all that fluoro, those big hair buns, those pots of brights. I mean, it must have felt like you were on top of the world.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, like I say, it was a, it was a very simple sort of um output of work with no real forward planning there was not necessarily an agenda there certainly wasn't a business plan and i guess the combination of the product itself the the, the clothing itself being this <clears throat> this breath of fresh air if you like combined with the girls that had agreed to model it you know it was it was jade that said why don't you do a show and it was sort of months before fashion week In 97 and I said how and who and where and I I was really sort of naive and not clued in um so we sort of just went day by day and built up this little collection of pieces and um you know it's amazing the British fashion industry how they sort of swarm bees to honey they you know they're, they're hungry for new and 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 I guess in all design fields, there's an appetite for newness. So I was the lucky new kid on the block at the right place, at the right time. The product was relevant and the girls that were wearing it were kind of household names, Helena Christensen and Kate Moss. You know, they don't have to do a new designer. They they can choose, even at that point they you know into this day when people ask me they still sort of ask me why did they, those girls do it and i can hear in the question a sort of frustration like why did they say yes to you and it's sort of very simply that they liked the clothes um they might have liked me as a person as well but they did it because they wanted to be part of this concept that they they liked you know it's it resonated with them and it was that simple um you know, I sat with Kate Moss in my bedsit the day before with eleven dresses on a rail and I said, I can't believe you're gonna do it and should I wanna wear that dress. I said, You can wear whatever dress you like. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was basically that's how it happened. And then it was broadsheet news the next day, it sort of went stratospheric overnight. We had orders coming in from Browns and Bergdorf and all sorts of sort of luxury stores around the world. And it was, you know, I was on top of the world, but it was a very surreal um, sort of suspended moment in time. And luckily I had my business partner at the time who sort of controlled our every next step and ensured that we didn't make massive, huge mistakes Um So, yeah,
0: it was a a great, you
1: know, I look back, very fond memories on that time.
0: Because you were, as you mentioned, literally in a bedsit. And I think the idea of having Kate Moss over to it is so sort of enchanting and, you know, sort of fits with our, like, you know, idealised vision of what Kate Moss was like at the time. Mm. What was the brand Matthew Williamson like? So you had a business partner. Did you have, Mm. other than that, were you a two-person band or what was that like?
1: Yeah, it was myself and my partner joseph so i was obviously the creative side joseph looked after the sort of you know these few accounts that we had building we had a freelance pattern cutter that would come in um i think we had one other person perhaps a sort of you know a a graduate from st martin's so it was really you know three four people running hand to mouth you know a bedroom business basically but then you have to put out this sort of veneer and this gloss and, and, you know, I'm sort of doing that by day. And then by night, I'm invited to Carl Lagerfeld's house in Paris for dinner.
0: Indulge me in, in that for a moment. I mean, uh, how fun was that? <laughs>
1: it was, yeah, it was, it was weird. I was sort of, I sort of received this super thick gilded invite through, through the door. And was like, is this a joke? Um, But no, it wasn't. It turned out to be a very intimate dinner in his place in Paris. I was sat next to Demi Moore and Mario Sorrenti, the photographer. And I was just sort of smirking across the table at my partner thinking, are we in some kind of movie scene? Is this happening? Um, But it did happen. And those kind of things happened for many years to come, you know, as we sort of grew from, Four staff to eventually 55 and 25 20 odd years later you know we we've had so many highlights along the way and um you know I'm very fortunate to have had that that long career in fashion it's you know it's it's tough to sustain being relevant in fashion for that long when you're not a luxury goods owned brand
0: I think it's what's interesting as well is from the outsider looking in, like it sounds like a lot of fun to be in Carl Lagerfeld's house. But I imagine as well, like it was also an element of it that felt like work, that you were building a brand. Is is that fair to say? or Or was it all just pure fun?
1: Yeah, like, you know, pockets of sort of pinch me now moments. But no, behind that, there was a huge, huge life commitment. I mean, the work that I do has never been A sort of nine to five I think most creatives would would sort of relate to that sort of you sleep with it you wake up with it you don't turn off it's it's a constant in your life Um, and then you know when you do build a business around creativity then of course other things come into play and as the years go on you're no longer as free perhaps as you were in those early days, you've got to consider stockists and fabric quantities and warehousing and production and staffing issues and, uh, you know, a million and one other aspects to running a business. So, you know, there was, there was, you know, I could probably talk long about the things that weren't so great and the things that were challenging and complex and disappointing. It was definitely, you know, both aspects
0: and, and that's quite a leap as well, dealing with all the things you just mentioned from, you know, a couple of years before, mm. not knowing how to put on a show and asking Jay Jagger for mm. help with that. I mean, how did you go from being such a small team to fulfilling these big orders to, you know, managing a, a, a sort of a, a, a global company, essentially?
1: Mm. Well, I only take half the credit for that. Um, you know, I, I suppose from my perspective, I am quite down to earth. I am quite financially minded I I, you know I never set out to do this just you know with an open budget and you know my, my, my mode operandi was to sell clothes I wanted to see women wear them appreciate them remark on them and come back and buy another one so I think I had that basic business acumen anyway been built in me from wherever my parents or and then I guess having Joseph On my side, he was coming at this from a very almost philosophical point of view and very analytical perspective. He's very academic. He understands maths. He learned to understand the luxury goods market. So we both had really clear, defined roles. They never really overlapped a, a huge amount. So, you know, and and, and to your point, it, it, you learn on the job. You had to learn, here's an order from Barneys, but we actually can't facilitate that order because we can't afford the fabric to make this. So, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily known that. I'd have just said yes to the order. But it was Joseph that was able to sort of carefully monitor and measure everything we did so we never ended up in a huge you know position of debt or you know anything really onerous.
0: I, I want to sort of jump forward a little bit now to the brand's fifth birthday in 2002 which is the next sort of big milestone that you chose previously. You know you and your designs by this point were sort of everywhere. For me um, I was a celeb mag reading student and I was sort of you know seeing your name in heat, you know out with Sienna throwing parties with Gwyneth you know, people like Gwyneth and Calista wearing your clothes, the brand had ballooned. What was happening behind the scenes at that time?
1: Well, you mentioned Sienna Miller there, and I suppose she sort of overlapped, if you like, from the earlier days of where I was working alongside Jade Jagger and she was very influential in the work that I put out. And then years later, you know, we built the business somewhat, and as you say, it was starting to get um, press and the press were also interested, it seemed, in me and my lifestyle. And 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 so, you know, you got this sense of a growing brand. And around that time, I met Sienna and just became the closest of friends. We still are friends today. Um, and we just had a laugh, really. And, and, you know, she was working on her career. It was very early stages for her. She was obviously, you know, in the press consistently for years, largely about her style and and what she wore and the, the sort of detail of what she wore. So she and I were first and foremost mates and we just used to laugh and do what everyone else does. But she also appreciated and loved the clothes that I made. So that was a very happy coincidence Um, and of course for my business it was hugely important because it sort of you know put my clothes on a much larger you know showed them to a lot much larger larger audience so yeah it was it was you know that was one aspect of it Um, I mean there's so much emphasis on celebrity I suppose in building a brand I think it's You know, whether it's good or bad, it's kind of where we were and it's still where we are now. I think endorsement from the right person at the right time with the right product, it's kind of a win-win situation. So I don't know when or if that will change, but it's certainly been my experience. Um,
0: one, One thing that was sort of changing at that time was your aesthetic, you know, looking back at the pictures. You know, clearly things were sort of moving on a bit from from 1997. What can you sort of describe what sort of style you were designing at that that time?
1: I would like to think that as the years rolled on, the collections I put out became more refined, more polished um, than they perhaps were in the early years. I think we just had more infrastructure in place. My aesthetic became you know hopefully more like i say more refined and i started to broaden the collection into daywear and resort wear and it just came more it became more fully rounded as a collection because it was often dismissed by a huge i guess majority of the press you know they sort of wrote it off as a a very whimsical brand that was just focused on you know jet sets and and sort of cliches of caftans and and so on and so forth. You know, we did struggle consistently against that wave of sort of doubters that didn't really give it any credit, um, which is never nice to have that sort of, you know, following your career. Um, But it did. So I I guess it just gave me momentum to sort of continue. You know, I've always thought you need a brand DNA. You need clarity about what you're doing. Some people might call that boring and repetitive. Other people might say it's smart and it's, you know, it's, it defines a brand. Um, and I was very much of that camp that, that I wanted to keep my customers and turn the dial of what I was doing season in, season out, as opposed to spinning it on its head and trying to do something that I'm not known for. But I think that's the same, you know, with every business, every every creative industry even now in home where I think it's it's I have a similar sort of dialogue with myself about it.
0: How much designing were you actually doing I'm sort of wondering what your day-to-day looked like because presumably you know the, obviously the brand's growing there's a lot of management and meetings and other mm. sort of design related things that you're being pulled into at this point.
1: Yeah it was exactly that I guess you I guess why why I decided to change. I mean, I'm sort of leapfrogging years ahead here, but ultimately I m- moved industries and careers from fashion to interior design. And I guess the 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 the, the reason I did that was starting to sort of f- filtrate in. I don't know, ten ten years into running the fashion brand, where the balance had shifted. And all of a sudden, I was becoming this, you know, business person as opposed to a designer. And I felt that I was doing all the roles that I didn't really sign up to do, and far more than I was designing. And you get feedback from buyers and, you know, they'd be say, I remember one buyer saying after a fashion show, she came to buy the collection. She liked one of the dresses, but she said, I wish you would have done it in a different colour And so next season, I took her advice, did exactly what she asked me to do. And then she didn't like what I'd done. And it sort of became clear to me that whatever I do here, it's becoming progressively harder, you know, to have impact um, because those buyers have to buy, you know, big brands and they have to buy new brands. Um, Equally, the press, they have to shoot big advertising brands and they have to feature young fledgling designers. So 10 years or more in, you're sort of becoming marginalised and it's, it, it becomes much harder.
0: Well, you did very well to remain as relevant as you did for so long then, I think. Um, I'm just going to sort of rewind slightly then, but we'll come on to the interiors uh, change mm. shortly. Um, but just going back to 2002, um, you know, I think it's it's worth sort of pointing out, actually, that it was around this time that you did your collaboration with the rug company. Um, mm. What, how does that come about? And do you think that was sort of a foreshadowing moment is to your, into your transition to interiors?
1: Definitely, yeah. Um, we did a lot of collaborations in that 20 year period. You know, we, we found that to be a really useful tool in keeping relevant for a start. So the rug company was one of the first that we were approached. And they have a very successful business where they do, you know, appoint a designer every year or so. And they've got a whole library, I'm sure you're aware of, you know, nearly everyone's done a rug now. So um, it's a formula that worked really well. We kind of got in there relatively early on. And it was just a, a no-brainer to me. It was a simple concept that made sense. But, yeah, since since um, you mentioned it, I think I've always loved interior design i can sort of chart it back to childhood very clearly and see it sort of i don't know which one i love more but i think there was a sort of tandem journey right from the get-go you know i loved designing my bedroom i loved watching my mom get ready for an evening or for work and this sort of went ran concurrently throughout the years and it just so happened fashion became the sort of front runner for me at that early stage of 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 picking which one but I was consistently fascinated and obsessed with if so so and so buys this dress I wonder what her cushions are like I wonder what chair she sits on so you know the home and fashion were just joined for me and 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 yeah I started the rugs and then that led to another very long still ongoing um, collaboration with Osborne and Little the wallpapers and furnishing fabrics So, yeah, it's definitely followed me along the fashion road, as it were.
0: I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about the sofa collection at Heels. If, like me, you've spent a lot of the last few months glued to your couch, then you'll know the importance of a good one, which is why at Heels you can create your ideal sofa, choosing from hundreds of fabrics and leg styles on multiple sofa shapes, offering a truly customisable experience. Heels, designed by you sofas, allow you to create a design that is just right for you and your home. From fabric to filling, every detail is down to you. Find out more at Heels.com or at any Heels store. Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. Now, in 2004, you opened your first flagship store. Um, Tell me about how that came about. Well,
1: it was, I guess it was a really pivotal moment in... It was the time when you know I'd obviously met lots of amazing people, you know I was knocking around with Madonna at one point, et cetera et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to name drop too much, although oh, it's <laughs> um, you know, I was living this sort of you know on the surface, this very sort of connected lifestyle, dressing all the right people. I had fifty five staff, I had a book um written. And, and you know, a book about my story, exhibitions at the Design Museum, talks to the, you know, the v awards, blah, 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 all very wonderful accolades and sort of things that I'm very proud of, but none more than the, the store, which opened um, just off Bond Street on Bruton Street. And that was a real labour of love. Again, it was, I guess it was my, opportunity to demonstrate my love of interior design for the first time where it would be not only seen by the public but it would be designed especially to harness and showcase the clothes that I'd made. So it was a passion project. I worked through the night for months on end, loved it. And I'll remember the very sort of next we opened with the big fanfare and Calice came to perform and I remember Susie Menkis writing rave reviews. So it was kind of a a massive um, line in the sand. And I remember feeling days or weeks later that that I'd created a a brand now as opposed to a business. It was that first time I kept thinking, oh, people in the street are going, oh, I love your store. And it felt like, you know, it's the first chance I could put all my clothes in one space and not have to rely on a buyer to pick and choose and not have to rely on an editor to print an image. This was a fully, you know, I, 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 I fascinated myself about the light bulbs, the finishes on the door, the bathroom, the, coat, the, 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 the clothes rails, etc. So, yeah, I was definitely proud of that moment, still am.
0: At the time, Vogue wrote about you that you had a where's the party attitude um, which I think is great for, you know, creating a brand and selling clothes and, you know, doesn't really sound like a business um, vibe. I'm assuming that the behind the scenes, that wasn't quite the case, that you were working probably harder than you'd ever worked before.
1: I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> um,
0: I think they, they meant it positively. I think they, right. they meant that it was like your your clothes were fun and, you know, it was all about yeah. all the time.
1: Yeah, there was only ever one goal in my head, which was to be optimistic with design to be mood enhancing you know all those sort of aspects that was what i was about and that kind of rubbed some people up the wrong way and other people loved it but you know they didn't see any issue with it um you know my work wasn't necessarily you couldn't really pull it apart and dissect it and have heated debates about what the meaning behind it was it was very light-hearted, full of colour, pattern, optimism, energy. And yeah, it was largely worn by women that wanted to walk in a room and they wanted people to think they look great and they wanted to be commented on their outfit. And that's what I did. Um, so that sort of was projected as quite flighty, I suppose. And, and like I mentioned earlier, I, I suppose it therefore didn't seem serious but behind the scenes you you know even if your business is a happy business on the surface you've still got to work very hard at the you know the mechanics to get that to happen.
0: And of course Um, I suppose with all this expansion you know the 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 fact that you've got 120 stockists around the world and 55 staff as you mentioned and a big thing you know that 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 comes with a lot of responsibility to people's jobs and you Know, I don't know if you had to borrow to, to pay for the store, but there's suddenly it's a big step away from your, your bed sit,
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it was, I mean, it's we did we packed a lot into those years, that's for sure. We sort of went from you know, student to as you just mentioned, the store we had four flagship stores in the end one in New York, Qatar, and Dubai, a couple, couple in the Middle East. Um. So, yeah, it was definitely a full 360 journey. We're
0: going to take a big leap now forward to 2013 and your fabric collection with Osborne and Little. Tell us a little bit about how the business changed from 2004 to
1: 2013. Well, I guess just sort of following where we touched on a second ago, where, I, you know, certain strands came into the business that made it, it sort of made it apparent to me that perhaps I could sort of move on here I felt that I'd gotten to a point where with fashion maybe I was repeating myself maybe you know in the late in the years before I ended the fashion business I felt I was less relevant you know it's not nice being in fashion if you're not relevant it's kind of really annoying and frustrating and, and, and hugely challenging if that's your sort of goal to be relevant. And then just by, you know, shift of time and amount of years, you become less relevant. Um, it's, you know, it's tough. So I think I had this sort of comfort blanket, if you like, and this passion of interiors. I had the Osborne and little collections that were doing fantastically well they were marketed around the world I was getting a lot of positive feedback from that that this was there was a gap in the market and much like my clothing I was able to apply the same principles and do wallpapers and fabrics um, and loved that project the rugs were doing well you know the, the the interior industry seemed to be welcoming of this sort of potential pivot and this shift across so I never sort of closed it down and had a big strop and did a big fanfare I just I'd like to think quite elegantly moved from one industry to the next I didn't fall off a cliff I didn't sort of go into hibernation for two years I just sort of dovetailed from one to the other.
0: There was a lot of shifting going on generally in in the landscape at mm. that time. I found another interview with you in 2013, where it very excitedly reported that you just set up an Instagram account, which mm. just seems so funny mm. now to think that that's newsworthy. But of course it was that.
1: Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the main sort of shift in fashion was, um, I guess, that sense of sort of losing a footing, you know, and maybe losing a bit of passion also, but also the shift within the industry of bricks and mortar stores, moving to online sales, you know, that just happened uh, to the point where, you know, I guess the, the same issues are around today. Of, of You know, we tried to sort of move online. We stopped doing fashion shows to reduce our overheads. You know, it's a huge expense, two shows a year, four collections a year. Um so the shift was happening. We just, you know, as, a, as both for me as a person and for me and Joseph as a brand, we just felt we needed to sort of end a chapter and and, and move forward, really.
0: What, what have you found has been the reaction to your career, Swerve?
1: Brilliant reaction. The press have been, as I say, really welcoming. Um, I've got, you know, lots of things in the pipeline that have been... Um, you know homeware products and interior projects there's definitely a, a sort of effortlessness sense that i get in doing it and the same back i think no one questions it no one is is perplexed by it at all i think it's a well trodden path i don't think i'm the first at all to have, have moved this way so yeah it just feels right natural
0: you've certainly taken on some big projects you know you haven't Uh, rested on your laurels at all you know like Blake's Hotel in West London for example it's like walking into a wonderful bejeweled cloud what was it like sort of putting that together
1: um yeah it was great I mean I love a project an interior project It's, it's it's probably the one thing that people don't maybe don't know that I do it I spoke to a friend about it the other day and she said maybe people just think you're too expensive and you're too niche and you're too you know do they even know you do it And I don't know that people do, but it is what I do half of my time, if not more. And it's what I love to do. Um, I take on private commissions from, you know, whoever, wherever. And I also do uh, commercial spaces like Blake's. I kind of love them both in equal measure for different reasons. I quite, quite like doing hotels or bars or restaurants because... You can almost do a bit, you can almost have a bit more of your imprint um, on that space because it's not for one person. But then on the other hand, I'm working at the moment with a client in Mallorca and it's a man and a wife, and they've got the total opposite styles to each other. It's amazing that they can even cohabit. There's, you know, one loves maximism, one's into clean lines, and mill- it's like a classic yin yang situation. So I quite like it because you, I'm, I'm sort of a bit like a therapist. I have to sort of gingerly tiptoe around and sort of get a happy medium. Um, you don't want to please one more than the other. Um, so I quite like that personal interaction as well and the, the the sense of pride of finishing the job and knowing that, you know, I've done it for them. I quite, I quite like the brief of working with a client. You know, when I used to make clothes, within reason I did what I wanted and then I waited to see if anyone liked it whereas in this world I'm actually sitting listening to the client and what their passions are what they like what they don't like what room they use what room they do you know and I'm literally absorbing what they want and coming up with the solution for them so it's much more about them than me in fact so I love I love both sides of that coin if you like
0: and I wonder how big your team is now because they're not small projects the ones that you work on but I'm assuming you haven't got the sort of 55 staff that you had back in the day with the with the fashion line. What's What's Matthew Williamson the brand like at the moment?
1: Well you're talking to the entire team right now it's me it's a one-man band <laughs> pretty much um, I mean it depends if If there's a job that I can't manage alone like I've paired it back to the bare minimum it's it's sort of through choice I sort of work really well on my own I kind of know what I want to do often I find that the more people involved the more protracted things become the more layered and and, you know whilst I can be a team player I I do like working directly I don't have a PA I find that just complicates things I'm dealing with the BBC at the moment on something and it's just a one-way conversation and I was thinking actually don't think we'd know half the answers to these questions if there was a PA. It would just take forever. So, yeah, I'm pretty self-sufficient. Um, I have a print designer that works with me regularly. I have a sort of technical person that works with me that can resolve all the issues that I can't do. Um, you know, basic backroom accountancy, um Joseph, my business partner, is on hand should I need him. He's sort of got a sort of hands-on, hands-off. You know, if there's a legal issue, he's there. Um, I have a PR team that's, um, that works for me. So it sounds bigger than I first <laughs> first cracked out to be. Um, but, yeah, it's probably f- between four to six people in total.
0: I wonder if you've ever had a master plan and if you have, how close you are to it at the moment.
1: God, Um, I suppose I'd be lying saying, no, I don't have a master plan. Um, I mean, I don't have a detailed end goal. You know, I don't necessarily have a, a complex plan. No, I want to do what I love. If that's a plan, I don't know. I want to especially now that the older I get and the longer I've done this, I think I'm good at sort of seeing crazy coming and crossing the road. (laughs) Um, You know, I want to do what I love and what feels right. Some of those things are more money driven than others. Some of them have got nothing to do with money at all. They're just projects that I want to do. So I'm lucky I can do that. I recognize that's a, you know, a nice place to be. But yeah, that really is, it might sound a bit naff, but that's the plan to sort of get up out of bed and enjoy more days than
0: not. I think that's a great plan. I think that's what we'll be heading towards, to be honest. (laughs) Um, What have you got coming up next, Matthew, that you can talk about?
1: So I guess I'm working at the moment on, with this horrible pandemic, there's been obviously a lot of stalled projects. So I think we're sort of coming... sort of light at the end of the tunnel it feels a bit like and things are slowly starting to come back into focus Um, because things really did sort of stop and um, you know three four months or so of very little work so I'm happy to say that I'm now able to get back in in the design world and I'm focusing on four projects which are Um, lighting a project I'm working with Pookie um, a British brand that I've loved for a long time we've decided to collaborate and I think it's October that we'll see the first sort of drop of product and it's due to the pandemic it's sort of split in two parts so in October you'll see a, a gorgeous sort of array of Matthew Williamson printed shades and then shortly after, towards the ne- you know, the spring next year, you'll see the bases that I've designed to coordinate. Sort of similar thing, I'm working on a collection of rugs. It's, it's now no longer the rug company, but a new brand that um, has given me sort of free reign. I've designed 12 new rugs. I'm doing a furniture collection, which is another British brand, um, and they're called Room London, And they do really exquisite, elegant, sort of simple, pared-back furniture. And they rather cleverly print fabric and then uh, uh, sort of apply the fabric, usually to the front of the furniture. And it's, you know, super high-spec, attention to detail. So I've just finished... I think it's about six prints I've done for them, bespoke prints that will go across drinks cabinets and sideboards and room dividers, etc. And then there is another project which is around floor tiles, ceramic tiles, which is probably going to be later next year. So, yeah, I'm keeping myself busy, that's for sure.
0: You truly are. You truly are. Um, Well, thank you so much for that talk, Matthew. We're going to move on to the last little section of the podcast. It's the home truth section, which is a quick fire round where I just have quick questions for you. Um, So, Matthew, what was the last piece of homeware that you bought for yourself?
1: I'll tell you what it was. It was a. It's on its way. I haven't even seen it yet. It's in the. It's being shipped as we speak. It's a. You might be able to help me here. It's one of those heads it's like a vase that has a head on the front a sicilian ceramic face if you like it's basically a planter that you sit on a sideboard or a table and it has a face it's a female face and sort of strewn around the head area are lemons and um figs so i can't wait to get that in my house
0: i think i want one two now it sounds very cool Um, it's
1: by a lovely brand they're called anemone interiors and they just have exquisite taste it's my favorite instagram account to follow
0: do you watch much tv
1: oh god yes um eight o'clock to ten o'clock that's my yes i'm not usually doing anything else
0: what are you watching
1: anything and everything i can find anything even when there's nothing on i'll be fine i'll find something um what am i watching right now oh god that's put me on the spot it's literally everything anything i love grand designs obviously i love those design shows um but i can equally do a really sort of you know tacky cheesy game show i can i can take all of it
0: (laughs) um what food is always in your fridge
1: um Almond milk is always there for my daughter. She's rather partial to that. So God help me if that's not in the fridge. Um, it's quite healthy, really, because I do have a, a child. So I try and sort of reduce the amount of dairy and cake and what have you. So, yeah, it's probably also living in Spain. It's less sort of ready meal. Um, you kind of have to cook. So it is full of vegetable fruit.
0: What is the most Gwyneth Paltrow thing you've ever done with Gwyneth Paltrow?
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, What's the most Gwyneth Paltrow thing? I'm sure that's a trick question. I've had dinner with her at a very fancy restaurant in East London. I don't think it's there anymore. But I remember booking the table and the... You know, I kind of, I don't know whether I should have, but I said it's for myself and Gwyneth. And then when we, when we arrived at the restaurant, they built a platform, I swear to God. It was like a raised platform area with one table and two chairs. So we sat rather awkwardly throughout this evening trying to have a little private, discreet dinner, yet we were sort of elevated for all to see. Very bizarre. I don't know if that's a Gwyneth thing to do, but that's what happened.
0: It, it sounds like Gwyneth to me. So, um, What other designers, Matthew, do you rate at the moment?
1: Okay, I'll pick one from fashion. I would say my favourite all-time designer is Dries van Noten. Why? I guess he's he's just remained so true to his brand. I love his pattern, colour, texture, layering. I don't think he follows trends. I think he's a sort of, you know, he does he does it his own way. Um, really admire his work and his career. And I guess in interiors, I love people. Uh, who do I love? Um, I love Penny Morrison as a sort of, you know, British sort of, um, I guess she does interior design. She does homeware products. So I, I, I sort of see you know um sort of what's the word a sort of mentorship aspect to her i I think she's had a great you know I've, i've i love her products but i love how she talks about it and what her philosophy is around how she works
0: and lastly where can people find you on instagram
1: oh it's quite easy to find i think it's just my name matthew williamson
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so nice to hear you talk and hear all those insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks.
0: And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pip McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels design that lasts a lifetime.